you're about to go on a journey through the history of Colombia to learn about a conflict that has shaped the lives of generations. Our focus is on the reintegration of ex-combatants, looking at gender in times of conflict and how that is dealt with in the after. By exploring women in conflict and toxic masculinity, we can begin to see the issues in restoring a normal society. How does conflict shape masculinity and femininity? Does it break boundaries or build them? Colombia is a country with a rich and diverse cultural heritage. The bustling cities and vast array of landscapes, its biodiversity and beauty can be seen and heard to all those who have the privilege. But Colombia has faced many years of conflict and pain with the state, paramilitary groups, and guerrilla groups fighting for different ideologies and beliefs. The battle was complex and at times unforgiving, but peace was forged, which means the conflict is over, doesn't it? Perhaps the greatest battle is yet to come because with peace comes normality. And for some, becoming a civilian again may be the hardest transition they have to face. For us to be able to understand the situation after the conflict, we must first look to what started it. I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Maria Estrada Fuentes to discuss some of the reasons behind the conflict in Colombia. Some people wrote the issues of the conflict through processes that started with um, independence from Spain. So many conflicts that started there and were never really solved. Some people linked the contemporary armed conflict to 1948 with the assassination of Jorge Elias Ergaitán in Bogotá. Gaitán was a politician who was assassinated during his second presidential campaign. This led to a civil war known as La Valencia, which resulted in widespread political violence between liberals and conservatives lasting over a decade. In the second half of the 20th century, we have the appearance of several um, leftist guerrilla organisations, but also Marxist guerrilla organisations. Marxists believe that capitalism creates a structure of inequality, where the bourgeoisie, or in other words, the ruling class, exploit the proletariat, the working class who seek their labour for salary. In Colombia, many Marxist and leftist groups were small farmers, land workers, and those from poorer areas wanting to fight against inequality. Then in the 80s, um, there was a big shift in the conflict dynamics with the guerrilla organizations, but also with the nar narcotics industry, which was rising. So who are the guerrillas and why are they important to us? The guerrilla organization who became an effective army made up primarily of peasants, wanted to fight against inequality in favor of liberal and Marxist ideologies. They not only fought against the state, but also paramilitary organizations made up mostly of landowners fighting for right-wing beliefs. The largest organisation were called the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or the FARC, who were formed in 1964. They are said to have had at its peak 20,000 fighters centred primarily in rural areas of Colombia, financing themselves through illegal means such as drug trafficking. What was interesting about the FARC was their stance on equality. With women making up around 40% of its members, it seemed to break traditional gender norms. We go back to Dr. Estrada Fuentes to explain some of the benefits the FARC offered for women. There are many difficulties, but also many benefits for people who join this kind of organization. Um, 
women and girls join guerrilla organizations because that's a way for them to protect themselves against family violence, for example, um, because they think about being in the guerrilla organizations is a good opportunity for them to have a different role in society or because they see that they're going to be living a life of poverty and that they won't be able to do anything with themselves. A study conducted by IFAD showed that at the root of the issue in Colombia lies a deep inequality in geographical structure. Poverty is significantly higher among rural areas in terms of monetary income, malnutrition and youth unemployment. The World Bank report estimated in 1978 the rural poverty rate was at 95% and extreme poverty at 65%. Compared to 27% extreme poverty in urban areas, this may explain the reasonings for joining the FARC, as their ideologies and goals were focused on changing the inequality in rural areas. But we have to question whether all members were presented with the element of choice to join. There are many cases in which um, recruitment is forced. Now, when I think about or when I, when I talk about voluntary recruitment, it is important to think that the historical circumstances, the level of poverty and the violence and the inequality forces people to make those decisions. So the notion of voluntary recruitment, of course, is not 100% accurate. So what does equality mean in terms of joining the FARC? Were men and women both viewed the same and treated the same within the organisation? Or did traditional gender roles still have a play within the conflict? There is a discourse of equality, and the discourse of equality is around the distribution of labour. So effectively, men and women have to do exactly the same things. When I've, I've worked with former combatants and we talk about their experiences, it's like they have to cook, they all have to you know, do nursing jobs, or they all have to be in combat equally. They have to, to be equally strong and support each other. So in that sense, it's equal. Now, there are small differences between men and women in, and the things that they can actually do in the armed organizations, and they're related to gender roles and expectations and um, sexual rights. What was perhaps the greatest contention between the FARC and its female members was how it dealt with areas such as personal relationships. The FARC implemented a strong policy of compulsory female contraception and forced abortions if women became pregnant. Something that I find quite striking is that women think that's a normal thing in the, when they are part of the guerrilla organizations. So I've had conversations with particularly a woman who requested enrollment when she was 11 years old. And then she was captured when she was 16. But she tells she always thought that it was a normal thing to have um, contraceptive injections from a very early age and that having sex with their partners who were significantly older than her um, was just the norm in life. So in terms, in terms of equality and how equality doesn't actually uh, play out in the armed organizations is in terms of sexual rights, but also the capacity um, within the organizations for women to be in important positions as well. So whilst the feminization of the FARC seemed to at some degree break traditional gender norms, when it came to a women's position or sexual expectations, it seems gendered standards of men and women still existed. 
One question we have to ask is what happens to these gender norms once placed back in a civilian lifestyle? How did militarised men and women return to a normal society? Peace negotiations had been formed all through the 80s and 90s. The most recent one where a peace deal was signed was in 2016 where the FARC agreed to disarm. Some FARC members had deserted before this period. Some were captured, some left, and others surrendered. But if all share these feelings of loss and pain, what happens when the fighting stops? And they return home. So how can a state deal with those returning, but also those that never left? How does one address such complex array of issues, from gendered concerns, feelings of grief, to the socio-economic problems like unemployment and displacement, whilst also trying to collectivise a society again from a period of unrest? This is where transitional justice comes in. We now talk to Alan Nori, Professor of Law at Warwick University. So transitional justice is a phenomenon that has been uh, practiced and studied well since the, the end of the Second World War, you might say, or you might say earlier, but its modern form dates from the 1990s and uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. The ICTJ defined transitional justice as to the ways a country emerging from periods of conflict and repression address large-scale or systematic human rights violations so serious that the normal justice system cannot provide an adequate response. With over a five-decade-long conflict, Colombia has seen one of the largest internally displaced populations, with statistics suggesting over 7 million people have been displaced. Along with the death toll of around 260,000, it is clear that some form of transitional justice is necessary. DDR programs have been used by many states in a period of transition. The term meaning disarmament, demobilization and reintegration looks to removing weapons and military structures and then socially and economically integrating combatants back into society. The International Centre for Transitional Justice notes that between 1989 and 1994, the Colombian state had signed nine peace agreements with different guerrilla groups who opted for demobilization and reinsertion programs. However, this first wave saw problems with the transition as it was focused on the economic aspect of giving financial support with very little follow-up. Colombia is therefore learning from that mistake with reintegration programs today. Dr. Estrada Fuentes explains the position many combatants are in with the reintegration programs. One issue is that the reintegration is an individual process. So when people join reintegration programs, they are separated from those communities, of course, but they are also treated as individuals, not members of a collective. So they have to learn to do everything by themselves. This sense of belonging and the sense of community is not something that is encouraged because the idea is that you have to transform these people into someone else, into self-sufficient citizens. 
The FARC opted for a reincorporation programme that was different to the previous DDR programmes. The aim was to maintain members as collectives, so they could all live in an occupied space of land. The FARC even today have a political nature, so they didn't want to lose that sense of shared community through individual processes of reintegration. So with the struggle in becoming a citizen again, is there also perhaps a gendered aspect in the fight for reintegration? Could it be that women have been empowered by war and conflict, but face the opposite when returning to a normal society? Professor Alan Norrie spoke on the issues some female ex-combatants have faced with reintegration. I have the perception that part of the problem has been that um, there is quite a strong women's movement in Colombia, but it's based in the cities. It's a metropolitan phenomenon and quite a lot of the struggle has been in the rural areas. Being more specific, I think the problem might be that there was a formal equality of men and women in the guerrilla movements, but uh, at the same time, assumptions about the roles of men and women were still in the background. And the women who have been soldiers I think find it quite hard to be reintegrated because there's a perception that they're not women. They haven't played a woman's role, they played the role of a man really as a soldier. And alongside that, where men and women have had sexual relationships in the FARC, in the guerrilla movements, then those women being involved in that are regarded as being not of value in terms of marriage. Dr. Andrea Mendez wrote, when looking at militarised gender performativity, that women who joined armed groups like the FARC not only renounced their civilian identities, but also that of their gender identity. She states the militarisation of femininity means women are required to adopt behaviour commonly associated with male soldiers. In Colombia, organisations like the FARC revealed the flexibility of gender and the role women play in society. Mendez seems to find in interviews the image of civilian women being associated with respect and feminine attributes, yet women from the armed organisations being considered different and could be treated differently because of this. This has meant reintegration has been difficult due to this stigma of what it means to be a female. As Dr. Estrada Fuentes explains, Women who are in the armed organisations, they're very independent in a way. They are subject to all these rules and regulations, but they're really strong and they're really resourceful. And that kind of is diminished in the civilian context because the skills are not appropriate, um, because the ways of interacting with each other are not appropriate. But perhaps there was also a lack of knowledge on how to deal with the gendered reintegration. I'm Juana Garcia, I'm professor at Universidad de Los Andes, but now I'm visiting a scholar at Harvard University. I think there are uh, two big problems with the gender dimension, is that the, the government didn't have any experience with gender reintegration process. And the other thing is the appropriation of gender approach by FARC. Um, they had an equal speech, but if you see, they are uh, just a few women on the, on the board. Uh, even in the negotiation process, just one woman, uh, Victoria Sandino, 
was part of the FARC negotiation team. Yet why is it when gender is on the agenda, in programmes like the DDR, that the discussion turns to a focus on women? The natural understanding somehow is that if you're talking about gender, then you're talking about women. So you've got the main processes of decommissioning and demobilisation and reintegration. And then you've got this kind of fourth add-on element, which is gender, which means women. And in, in a way, you can understand that because you know, I think that women do experience guerrilla warfare and are victims in a particular way. Sexual violence is mainly done to women, but what, the, what it leaves out is the sense that the issue might be the relationship between the genders, the relationship between uh, masculinity and uh, a, really a constructed femininity. So you can talk about a, a sort of a hegemonic masculinity. Connell's concept of hegemonic masculinity identifies men in a hierarchical position where they dominate over women and other minority groups of men. But if you talk about that and you talk about the way that women relate to that and you talk about the way that women were treated in the conflict then you can see how the issue of gender is something that includes both men and women. Kimberly Thieden wrote, the issue with DDR is that there is a gender deficit. She talks on militarised masculinity which fuses certain practices and images of maleness with the use of weapons and violence. She sees that the government fails to move beyond demobilising combatants. It is encouraged to include gender within transitional justice, but under Thieden's argument it would seem both genders and the interaction between the two should be included in the process. Perhaps without the psychosocial policy and reintegration programmes for both men and women, there is in turn a risk of a culture of violence returning to the private sphere if the proper care is not given. Or perhaps there is a problem with the term reintegration altogether. Stop. Reintegration makes the assumption of returning back to a particular state. The UN defined reintegration as to acquire civilian status and gain sustainable employment and income, calling it a social and economic process with an open time frame. Could we not see that the normal society before the conflict is arguably no longer present in the after? Therefore, is it perhaps not a reintegration, but a collective transition for both combatants and normal society? The notion of reintegration, I think, is, is not accurate because in most cases people have to join communities that they never belong to. So the notion of reintegrating is not um, a realistic one at all. And also there is this assumption that those who have to transform themselves and those who are supported and who need to change are just the ex-combatants. But my, my research and my work uh, and my experience working on reintegration programs myself has taught me that one has to change as well. One has to learn about these experiences. One has to learn former combatants are fellow citizens and that it is a process of transformation that needs to take place from a civilian perspective and also the people who come from the armed organizations that they need to adapt themselves. Famous Colombian artist Doris Salcedo once stated, I think that creating poetics of mourning is very important. Art cannot explain things, but it can at least expose them. 
we all understand the note of mourning, but quite in a lay sort of way, uh, you know, Freud wrote an essay called Mourning and Melancholia. And basically what he said there was, whenever you lose something that's really important to you, then there's a process of coming to terms with the loss. But sometimes if you don't get the chance to come to terms with the loss, then you internalize what you've lost as a, a negative sense of yourself. You've got to get through mourning. And I think that there's so many different aspects to mourning once a conflict like this comes to an end. People talk about the ideal victim, you know, but there are a lot of victims who are regarded as not being ideal victims. One thing both civilians and ex-combatants share is the sense of loss. We as a country and a society needs to reconciliate. And I think one of the biggest problems right now is that the peace process were very politized and didn't have the time and the space to do this reconciliation process. There are still a lot of structural change that we need to take place in the country, like the land reform, the transitional justice. I think the government needs to put more efforts in the implementation. This is not a process that is in charge in one or two actors. This is a process that we need to participate as, as a country and a society. This idea of collectivism is extremely important for Colombia to move forward. It is not just the ex-guerrillas or the government or civilians. All need to work together to be able to move past a conflict that has both shaped and taken the lives of many. What happens when the fighting stops? The battle continues.